Why don't we have a word of prayer, and we will ask God to be with us as we jump into the book of James. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves in James chapter 2, and Father, we pray that the word of God would speak to hearts today. Lord, the Bible itself says that the word of God is living and active. And I pray, Lord, that the word of God would come alive in people's hearts and minds today. Father, may your Holy Spirit be present and guide our study of James chapter 2. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Those that are new here today, we have been doing a sermon series in the book of James, and we are simply studying verse by verse the book of James. And James chapter 2, if you have your red pew Bible, James 2 is on page 812. James chapter 2. And before we begin, I would like to share an imaginative scenario. And we will call this girl, we'll call her Julie. Julie looked up and scanned the bleachers. And as she looked across the bleachers, she saw that once again, he wasn't there. Taking a deep breath, she braced herself for the fact that her dad didn't make it to one of her swim meets yet again. When it came to her swim meets, always something came up. An unscheduled conference, a last-minute call, an unexpected rush of work. And while Julie was preparing for the swim meet, inside she had feelings of anger because her father always seemed to have time to attend her brother's football and baseball games, but never came to one of her games. Julie noticed in her home favoritism. And perhaps as you think about your childhood, that was a very real fact for you, that maybe there was favoritism in your house. But perhaps some of you are saying, Jeff, there was no favoritism in my house. My parents loved us equally. Well, uh, not July, but October of 2011, Jeffrey Kluger, the senior editor of Time Magazine, wrote an article called this, Why Mom Liked You Best, The Science of Favoritism. You can see the picture there of the middle girl that has the huge piece of cake and the two kids on the side with the smaller pieces of cake. And in the corner, you can't really read it, but there's small print with a little asterisk, and it says, of course, mom would never admit it. And in this article, Kluger argues that no matter how much parents deny the reality, because he says parents always deny there's a favorite, he argues from his point of view that the majority, he thinks, of parents have a favorite. He cites a study done by the University of California that concluded some 70% of fathers and 65% of mothers exhibit a preference for one child over the other. 
Perhaps the golden child is the oldest one or maybe the youngest. Maybe the most favorite child is the toughest one or maybe the most sensitive. But Kruger goes on to say that favoritism is hardwired into our species. Now, I grew up in a home where I would argue there was no favoritism. My parents always uh, made sure they were fair. In fact, my dad, that was one of his things that he was probably the biggest advocate of. If one kid got 10 bucks, the other kid had to get $10 as well. He wanted to make sure that everything was fair. And so while I don't know if I completely agree with Kruger's conclusions, I do agree with his statement there that favoritism is hardwired into our species. He writes from an evolutionary perspective, but we know, friends, that the reason favoritism and partiality is hardwired into our species is because of a three-letter word called sin. And before sin, there was no partiality. Everyone on equal ground. But after sin, you better believe it, that hardwired partiality began to be played out. And it's been around for so long that James, here in chapter 2, addresses this topic of partiality. James chapter 2, verse 1. Let's begin our study. The Bible says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James, in other words, says, My brothers, you can't really say, I have faith in Jesus, and yet at the same time, show partiality. The two are not congruent. They don't go together. They're incompatible. Why does James argue that? Why does he say, you know what? I'm a Christian, but I can't be partial at the same time. Why does he argue that? Well, the answer is found in Romans 2.11. Turn with me quickly back to Romans. Romans right after Acts. If you want to keep your hands in James, we'll come right back there. But Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Why is James able to say, hey, you can't claim faith in Christ and have partiality at the same time. They don't go with each other. Well, the reason why Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, and if you're there, say amen. 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 Romans 2.11, Paul writes this. He simply says, there is no partiality with God. The reason, and if we flip back to James here now, the reason James can say there's, you listen, you can't claim to be a Christian and also have partiality is because the Christ that you're claiming isn't partial. God shows no partiality. And in fact, that concept in Scripture, especially the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, comes up time and time again. I have these verses on the screen. Galatians 2.6, Paul writes again. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Again, in Ephesians, Paul writes at the end, there is no partiality with him. And Peter picks up this same uh, idea in his epistle when he writes, If you call on the Father who without partiality... Judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. God is not partial. God is not a respecter of persons, perhaps your version says, as in the King James. 
that word partiality or respecter of persons literally means to lift up someone's face. To put their uh, face on a pole and hoist it up and say, wow, look at them. But God is no respecter of persons. There's a story about a Chicago bank that once asked for a letter of recommendation for a young Bostonian that was seeking employment at the bank. A young man from Boston was moving to Chicago. He wanted to work at this bank, and so he asked for a letter of recommendation from the Boston investment house that he had worked at. Well, the bank in Chicago quickly got a note from the Boston investment house, and they couldn't say enough about the young man. His father, they wrote, was one of Boston's first families, a Cabot. His mother was a Lau, and further back, he had a happy bland of Peabody's and other Boston's first families. His recommendation was given without hesitation. Well, several days later, the Chicago bank sent back a note saying the information supplied was altogether inadequate. And the note read, We're not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, but rather just for work. The Chicago bank could care less about the Peabody in his bloodline, but more importantly, about his work ethic. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, Peter opened his mouth. This is the first time Peter said it before he put it. In his epistle, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. What is God really concerned about? Verse 35, but in every man or every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Amen. God accepts those from every family, every nation, every race under the sun. And he is his concern is with your heart. Well, apparently James' readers were in the habit of being partial because he illustrates his first argument, you can't claim to be a Christian and also show partiality, and he illustrates that argument by citing a uh, proposed story in verse 2 and 3. So in verse 2 and 3, James says, if there should come into your assembly, and that word assembly is the word for synagogue, and in James' time, a synagogue was used both for religious purposes and also secular purposes. So perhaps this was a religious meeting like church, or maybe it was a a town hall meeting, or maybe a, a court meeting as well. He says, if someone should come into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there also should come in a poor man with what type of clothes? Filthy clothes. So James here draws a picture of two men entering into the synagogue, and one is well-dressed, and the other is poorly dressed. And notice how both of them are treated in verse 3. It says, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit at my footstool. The word that James uses for uh, saying to the rich man, you sit here in a good place, also could be translated as a comfortable place. You come here and sit in the best seat in the house. The rich man is ushered to a special seat with ceremony and respect, while the poor man is given zero courteous consideration. 
And he's simply asked to stand or maybe even squat on the floor. And apparently this scenario was taking place in James' community. The Christians, those who claimed the faith of Jesus, were giving better treatment to some versus others. And James essentially says, listen, by doing that, you're showing discrimination. If you pay better attention to the important and the famous and the wealthy, notice what his conclusion is in verse 4. James says in verse 4, if you show partiality or if you discriminate between these two, verse 4, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And then notice his conclusion. He says, and become judges with evil thoughts. James calls these partials individuals judges. They've expressed their judgment by their actions. They said, you know what, I want to spend time with you, but I really don't want to spend time with you. You know, this past week in VBS Kids that are here, do you guys remember what took place on Wednesday at VBS? Do any of the VBS Kids remember who we brought in at the end of VBS on Wednesday, yeah? We brought in a special company called Pacific Animal Productions, and they came and did an animal show. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, they presented different animals from different continents, and they were exotic animals. We saw a kookaburra bird from Australia, which I found out. When you watch a film and you hear a monkey in the trees, that they actually use the kookaburra's voice to do that. So you hear the monkey sound, and they're actually taping a kookaburra noise to take care of the monkey noise. We saw a, um, uh, also a very, very flexible ferret. And we learned that NASA employs ferrets. You know that uh, ferrets actually have a pretty good job. Uh, some of them work for NASA because they tie a uh, harness to their back with a little wire and they can uh, weave in and out of various uh, pipes and places um, to get the job done. And we also saw a, a huge lizard And she also pulled out two giant hissing cockroaches. And, you know, she starts talking about how each of these are God's unique creatures. And I was having a hard time connecting God's special creatures to cockroach. Um, But uh, I found out, and maybe you didn't sign up to receive this fact at church, but I found out that cockroaches can live without their head for 14 days because they breathe out of the side of their body. Which is interesting, right? Um, But God said, or excuse me, uh, Cindy said, you know what? They have a special purpose, and that is they are the clean-up crew for planet Earth. And they are the decomposers. And they have a special role. And again, I had a hard time connecting God's special creatures with that one. But her point was clear to all the kids. All these different animals, different places, different jobs, different roles... But guess what? Every single one of them is one of God's animals. And her point was more than that, that you know what? Not just God's animals and creatures, but all of God's people are special in his sight. And it doesn't matter what country you're from. doesn't matter what education background you have. What matters is your love for Jesus. And that is what James is trying to communicate here, which is why he says in verse 5 this. Listen, my beloved brethren, 
Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be what in faith? Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Friends, the world judges a man's worth based on material possessions, but God measures a person's worth based off of Christ's worth and their relationship with him. The same man may be poor in the eyes of the world, but rich in the sight of God. And notice here, James is not saying this. He's not saying, you know what? The moment that you become poor, you're part of God's kingdom. Absolutely not. Because regardless of your economic status, notice what he says at the end of verse 5. He says he has promised the kingdom to those who love him. And what James is desiring is that individuals give their hearts wholeheartedly, unreservedly to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice this quote here in Christ's Object Lessons, a powerful book, page 386. It reads, No distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. He is the maker of all mankind. All men are of one family by creation, and all are one through redemption. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, to throw open every compartment of the temple that every soul may have free, what's that word? Access to God. His love is so broad, so deep, so full that it penetrates everywhere. It lifts out of Satan's circle the poor souls who have been deluded by his deceptions. Can I hear an amen? It places them within reach of the throne of God, the throne encircled by the rainbow of promise. What a beautiful, beautiful thought that God's love lifts out of Satan's circle an individual and places him in reach to the throne of God. That is how God views each individual, that every single person can be rich in faith because of what we will receive. But those in James' readership were not doing such. In fact, they were shutting the door to even the churches who maybe were poor in economic status. Notice verse 6. It says, Have you, but have you not dishonored the poor man? Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James here is not specifically talking about riches, but what you do with your riches. And as he mentions here, there were individuals that with their wealth were dragging the poor into court and trying to squeeze out of them every penny they could. Oh, you owe me something? Well, I'm going to drag you to court. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get everything that I can, every single penny. And James is so frustrated with this attitude that he even goes as far to say in verse 7, when they were dishonoring the poor, did they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? By treating people differently with discrimination, James goes as far to say that we are blaspheming the noble name by which we are called. Friends, we are called Christians Because of the name of Christ. And Jesus' name is noble, let me tell you. Jesus' name is worthy, friends. 
And when we cast discrimination and we treat other people differently, we are essentially blaspheming the name of Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are not honorable. By showing partiality to a group of people, we're going contrary to the very name of Jesus. But James' readers, again, were struggling with this thought. And in fact, they even went as far to quote Scripture to defend their special attention to the important and the rich. Look at verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Apparently, those that James was writing to were trying to justify their partiality to the rich. And they were saying, well, hey, the Bible commands that we're supposed to love our neighbor. And if we're supposed to love those around us, we need to love the important and the wealthy and the famous. Because God says to love our neighbors. And James here says essentially, all right, that's good. If you're loving them for the right sake because the Bible commands to, that's, that's good. He says um, there in verse 8, you do well if you do that. But then he adds, but... If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you are loving your neighbor simply because you're being partial and you're trying to get in with the the popular crowd, James says, if you show partiality, you commit S-I-N, sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. He says that showing partiality having racism, treating one group of church members one way and another group of church members another way is in fact, and he throws in that two-hand punch, a sin. Wow. You know, I read this past week that the famous uh, Hindu individual Gandhi, um, during his student days, uh, began to read the Gospels. And Gandhi came across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he was impressed with the Jesus that he found in the Gospels. So much so that he considered um, becoming a Christian. And he thought, wow, this Jesus is the very solution to the caste system that's found in India. Gandhi's one goal and purpose was to eliminate the caste system in India. And he thought, you know what, maybe this Jesus will be the solution. Well, he decides to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. And when he entered the sanctuary, however, when the usher saw Gandhi in his clothes representing his Hindu religion, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested, you know, you probably need to go worship with your own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned and said, if Christians have caste differences too, I might as well remain a Hindu. And friends, let me tell you that to eliminate a caste system, you know what the the problem is? It's a problem of the heart. And the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. And you can try to force people to eliminate that system. You can try to give speeches and arguments. But the only solution 
to the sinful heart is Jesus Christ. And oh, how I wish that Gandhi knew Jesus. These men and women here in James were most likely upstanding church members. They were paying tithe. They were keeping the Sabbath. They were faithfully attending. They were doing outreach, but they showed discrimination. They treated people differently based on physical differences or educational differences or social class. And because of that, though they were upstanding church members, this one point they wrestled with, and notice how James addresses that in verse 10. He says, but whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is what? Guilty of the entire thing. So this church member was keeping the whole law and he said, hey, look at the good that I'm doing. But then he was a proud and self-righteous man. And James says, hey, he who stumbles in one point is guilty of all. You can't say, well, you know, guess what? I keep all nine commandments of the ten. Wow. When there's that one last one. Someone wrote this, that a glass that is struck only at one point is nevertheless shattered. You take a piece of glass, it doesn't matter how many times you get it, at one point the whole thing shatters. And he writes, the law is not a set of ten pins, one of which may be knocked down while the others are left standing. The law is a unit. Its unity is love. To violate it at one point is to violate love as such the whole of it. Amen? When I was growing up, if my dad gave me three rules and I disobeyed one of them, do you think it would work to go up to him and say, Dad, why are you so mad? At least I'm keeping your two other rules, right? What's the big deal that I'm breaking this one? But I broke my dad's trust, and I communicated to him, you know, maybe your word is not that important after all. And James continues this same point in verse 11, and he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Do you think an earthly judge will pardon the violation of one law simply because the culprit has kept many other laws? If I get caught for, let's say, robbing, and I go to the judge and say, but judge, on the way home, I kept the speed limit, and I kept that law. And guess what, judge? Even though I robbed him, I didn't murder him, so I kept that law too. Of course, friends, that does not work. These church members who were excusing their partial treatment. James here says, listen, if you break one, you break them all. They come as a unit. And friends, too many times we see that people choose what law they want to keep based on what fits their lifestyle. Man, you know what? This section of scripture, I can do. I got this one, God. But this one's a little tough for me to carry out, so maybe I'll put that one in the back. Many people today, with that same thought, have completely ignored the most beautiful commandment of them all, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Saying, you know, hey, I keep all nine. And so the, the fourth, hey, well, you know what, I worship every day. 
But James here says, hey, that, that whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, he's guilty of it all. But praise God, friends, that if we do break the law and we make a mistake, there is a Savior that we can go to. Amen? James continues. He says, verse 12, all right, the law, please act and, and speak in such a way that your life conforms to the law. Verse 12, he says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Desire of Ages, page 466, says this about that law of liberty. She writes, sin can triumph only by enfeebling the mind and destroying the liberty of the soul. Subjection to God is restoration to oneself to the true glory and dignity of man. If you want to live a dignified and honorary life, if you want to experience true freedom, I encourage you to submit yourself to God because that is what brings true freedom. It continues, the divine law to which we are brought into subjection is the law of liberty. Wow. I love how James refers to the law. It's a law of freedom. This July 4th, we remember the freedoms that we have in this country. And friends, isn't it a privilege to be able to come into a sanctuary on the Sabbath day and no one says a thing? We can worship freely in this place. Praise God for those freedoms. And James here says the law of God will truly set you free. We can try to find freedom in things of this world, but they won't satisfy, friends, because God is the one alone that can set us free from sin. And when we are set free from sin, that is what brings true liberty. James concludes his argument there in verse 13. And he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, for mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Wow. James gives a convicting thought that the law, the fate of the lawbreaker is certain. Judgment without mercy. He says, if you have not shown mercy to the poor, you will not be shown mercy. It's a biblical concept. Notice what Proverbs 21, verse 13 says Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. And sometimes, friends, it's a hard thought to swallow, but if we are not showing mercy and compassion to those around us, how can God show mercy and compassion on us? If we're not forgiving those around us, how can God forgive us? And it's not legalism, but it's simply God saying, you know what? I am a God of love and mercy, and I want you to emulate my character because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My brethren, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. I told this story to some of the VBS children, so it may be familiar, but I thought I would share it today. In southern Africa, there is an island. And this island, back in the day, many years ago, was filled with cannibals. And this island had individuals that... Ate human flesh. 
And missionaries had tried to go to this island and share the gospel, but unfortunately, those that had gone did not come back alive. And there was one individual who saw this island, and he said, you know what? Those people need to hear about Jesus. And he talked to his friends about his plan, and they said, absolutely not. Look at what has happened to those that have gone to this place. Don't go, because you might not come back. They probably would really enjoy you for supper. But the man, as he prays about it and thinks, says, I have to go. Matthew 28 says the gospel needs to to be preached. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, including cannibals. And so he gets his boat out and he rows to this island. And as he gets out on this island, he steps on foot and nothing happens. Steps foot on shore and nothing happens. Quiet, silence. Lord, what do you want me to do? God puts an idea in his head and he walks into the beautiful forest with the flowers and the trees. And he decides, you know what? No one's here. It's quiet here in the forest. I'm going to preach to the trees. And so he begins preaching to the trees. And he says, God, I want to thank you for each of these trees here. And trees, you know what? God made every single one of you. Flowers, God made you too. And birds that are uh, chirping there in the trees, God made you too. And you know what, trees? There was a man by the name of Jesus that many years ago died on a tree for the sins of the people on this island. Trees, the people that live on this island, They have a Savior who loves them. And unbeknownst to this man as he's there preaching to the trees, there are the cannibals hiding in the bushes. And they had heard someone on the island and they thought, is that an animal? What is that? And they go to check it out and they say, ah, the gods have smiled on us. Here is lunch. But before they do anything, one of them says, stop, listen, what is he saying? And they hear some of what the man is preaching. The man just continues to preach, has no clue that the cannibals there are hiding in the bushes. Continues to preach, and they're listening uh, very, very closely to what he's saying. Should we get them now? Well, we can eat them later. Let's listen a little more. Well, after a time, the village chief comes, and and he had heard that uh, the gods had sent a meal, and it wasn't coming back to the village, and so he goes to check it out himself, and he sees the man, and he has his spear, and the villagers say, wait, chief. Listen, listen, he has something to say. And so the chief listens to what this man is saying. God created the trees. God made the flowers. God loves the people on this island. And that God is coming back to take everyone home to those that love him, he preached. They had never heard anything like this before. And in fact, the story goes that the chief was listening so closely, so carefully, that he had put his uh, spear down into the ground, and it actually had poked his foot. And unbeknownst to him, he was listening so carefully. And he looked down, and blood was coming out. And as they come out, uh, they come out of the the forest, and they say, we got to talk to this missionary, this man. And the man sees the, the blood on the foot, and he gets nervous, and they want him to come back to the village. But as they bring him back to the village, they say, please share with us more. And as they get back, they bring everyone around, and they say, you know what? We want your God to be our God. 
Will you come back and build us a church so we can learn more about your God? True story. And you know, friends, God is not partial. God desires the gospel to go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people on planet Earth. And it doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what region you're from. It doesn't matter your background. God wants the gospel to go into your heart and my heart. And friends, are we willing like that missionary to not show any partiality, to show no favoritism, and to go forward with faith saying, Jesus is coming soon. I want to be a missionary. Friends, God is faithful, isn't he? And we want to conclude our service by singing together, great is thy faithfulness. Because at the end of the day, guys, it's not our faithfulness, it's God's faithfulness. And so why don't we stand and sing together, great is thy faithfulness. Hymn 100, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O 